Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys, Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. This is episode 83, and tonight we're covering the top five acid westerns. Uh, just for those of you that maybe aren't familiar with the term, uh, this is something that was originally um, used derogatively by critic Pauline Kael, the New York Times, to describe um, the... Alejandro Jodorowsky movie El Topo, um, and then has been kind of was brought back in the 90s, early 2000s by um, another one of our friends, Jonathan Rosenbaum, critic for Chicago Reader um, and other Chicago newspapers for many years. And uh, he was reviewing Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man and called it an acid western. And uh, it was received, you know, feedback and fan mail uh, to the Chicago Reader, and he ended up writing a follow-up article about Dead Men and about acid westerns, and this led him to write a book on acid westerns. Um, he sees um, the way he d- describes acid westerns um, is that he says that first there was a pot western. I don't know if you ever heard of this, Frank. Um, <clears throat> He things he says things like um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, things that kind of like are drifting and have nonlinear elements in terms of westerns. Um, there's there's a pot western kind of like first, and then um, and then you get into the things that are have more like almost hallucinogenic qualities um, uh, that uh, you know and and uh, symbolism, and he kind of like sees those more as the acid westerns. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also says that a lot of these acid westerns, um, his interpretation of it is that the counterculture of the 60s and early 70s, um, he, they associated traditional westerns with capitalism. And therefore, the acid westerns a lot of times have at least a hint of um, subverting the western to a point in order to make so, uh, sort of anti-capitalist um, uh, arguments um and he says in the sense that like you know the west that once was like a road to liberation and you know improvement like manifest destiny you know and then right. the acid western reverses that to where it's like everything is nightmarish and you know like society's crumbling everything's death um and he says he sees that and argues that's a part of the acid western a lot of times as well yeah, i don't i don't know if i buy that argument 100 percent um I mean, I think that can be true, sure, but I don't think that's always, like, to me, an acid western is a movie that uses the, like, the common tropes of the western genre to make it familiar, but then does something else that makes it sort of unique unto itself. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think there has to be any sort of necessarily um overriding symbolism or overt like socio-political message or whatever i mean i guess that can be there but i think it's more just about like using the genre to tell a different kind of story or whatever tell the same story in a different way i suppose maybe Mm -hmm. maybe i have a more broad interpretation of what i feel like an acid western is um because, I mean, one of these movies that's on this list is really just a retelling of, like, 
you know, a story that's been told a number of times in Hollywood. Sure. Um, but done in a way that's completely both reverential to the Western and completely different at the same time. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you can't write a 250 page book unless you get real specific um, about what you're going to define um, a term as uh, and then sell it. So, uh, yeah, he, he gets really specific. I was just getting a really broad overview of his stuff, but it's even more more specific than what I'm even talking about when uh, what he lays out for an acid western. Um, I agree with you. I, I, th- I think it's uh, limiting to sit there and bring the political symbolism into the definition. Right. Um, although I do think plenty of them touch on that. Um, sure. Like, you know, but um, I, I, I do think it's limiting to necessarily absolutely 100% of the time include that as, an inter- as piece of the um, definition. Um, I mean, but- I, would, I would almost argue, and this isn't on this list, but I would almost argue that maybe like Wild at Heart is kind of an acid western in its own way because sure. it has like some of the same tropes and lynch uh-huh. is if anything like apolitical you know what i mean like he's right. more about whatever like the like understanding humanity as opposed to limiting it to whatever like a comment on society or something or capitalism or whatever sure, sure. um yeah. i don't know yeah i i, I don't ever like I mean, I know that our whole, like, point of this podcast is to make lists about, like, the best, like, X of something, but mm-hmm. I don't like to limit, like, saying that something, like, a specific genre is or isn't a thing, you know what I mean? Like, I think there's plenty of movies that can be considered horror movies that might not, at first, like, you know, first glance, fall squarely into that genre, but I think if you're able to broaden your definition of what a genre is, I think a lot of things can fit in it if that makes any sense, so I don't know. It does. It's, uh, I mean, we've certainly run into this plenty of times as we try to, you know, a lot of it times also we, means we classify that... by genre a lot of times we've run into this problem before of like, you know, when something is like, mul- has multiple genres that it falls into, we run into this a lot. Um, right. It also means that this dude, Rosenbaum, can just like pick and choose what movies he wants to place in the genre that fit whatever narrative he's trying to sell in this book. Like, so to me, that's disingenuous to, to do that. You know, like, you should examine everything. And if you're, whatever, like, your thesis holds, then that's what you go with. But if not, maybe there's, like, a broader definition to what... I mean, it's not like he coined the term, you know what I mean? It's He doesn't have exclusive rights to it, so and he's I, stealing I, somebody I, else's. I, I read, to his um, follow-up article in The Reader <clears throat> about Dead Man. And he claims to um, to to not remember hearing that term anywhere. Um, so he almost acts like he coins it, even though it's r- widely known that uh, Pauline Kale did it. But he doesn't remember reading that ever. But he doesn't say he doesn't deny that he didn't read it, like necessarily in Kale, and maybe just forgot. But, um, but I mean, I never read either Pauline Kale's thing or his thing, and I knew of the term. Sure. Just because that's what you called certain movies, I guess. Right. It was already in the parlance, but um, right. yeah. So, but uh, yeah, but it's that, a pretty cool genre. Like, there's some yeah. good movies in it, and I think that like westerns tend to lend themselves to 
like bleeding into other genres a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about Bone Tomahawk um, last year or earlier this year, whenever the hell that happened. Um, we talked about westerns before. Um, you know, so I think we, we, we talk. We talk. We've done the mo- modern western list and our spaghetti western list. Yeah, and we've talked about some other westerns in between there. Um, sure, and you look at stuff like I don't know, even like Easy Rider, and there's things that have the feel of a western that aren't, you know, sure, just naturally set like within, like a man on a horse with a, um, you know, cowboy hat or whatever. So. Sure. I was trying to find the word Stetson, so pretend like I said that first. Got it this time. Yeah, so, I mean, well, one of the movies on this list, like, doesn't really have any cowboys in it um, at all. Like, even though it has the setting of a Western to a large degree. And the feel of one, in my Sure, opinion. sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Funny thing is, um, there's a movie on this list that's on this list, not not by accident, because I really do enjoy it, but I actually was thinking of a different movie when I put it on there. Um, I was thinking of a Korean movie from the 2010s, maybe, maybe a little earlier than that, called The Good, The Bad, and The Weird. Yeah, it's 2008. Which is a, um, like a high-action, almost steampunk reimagining of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Um, and that's what I was thinking about, but I put another movie on the list, the number four movie, um, which I watched again uh, today, and I really still enjoyed quite a bit. Um, but I got that mixed up, so my bad. So just as a secondary recommendation, Good, the Bad, and the Weird is um, pretty pretty great. Yeah, and I, I know. And, and with your broad definition, like I now I definitely see where the number four movie um, fits this list. Um, but I watched the trailer once you told me that earlier today of the good, the bad, and the weird, and I definitely see like that movie having even more elements that that you know. Um, yeah, that's that's the movie that was in my brain when I was making the list. Right. Like the images from that movie are what I was thinking about. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, and you made this list in February, I believe within 10 minutes of talking about it. So, um, like you pretty much had like this list on call. Um, like one of those ones you just did very quickly. Like you just like knew kind of like what you want to do. And there's a movie, um, from the nineties called six string samurai that in my, Mm -hmm. my head, I always think of as being uh, acid Western, but I don't remember much of it because I've only seen it like one time. Yeah. Um, there's also a movie from 2004 called Blueberry, right? Which is based on um, I can't remember the name of the comic artist, but it's uh, um, I think he might be French or Spanish. Um, kind of combination of noir and uh, like man with no name style uh, western, um, and supposedly that movie's pretty good. Uh, but I've never seen it, so right. those are a couple others. Yeah, I've, I've read. Yeah, I've read it. I've read about that movie a couple times now as I've been kind of researching the genre. The comic itself is fantastic. It's it's done in kind of a. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with King serials, but they did um, like the Phantom and uh, all that stuff that used to be Prince Valiant. 
mm-hmm. in um, the Saturday morning papers. Um, so it's kind of done in a similar art style to that. Um, but really like subversive stuff and it's got like the grit and the like almost desperation of like the worst parts of the or the darkest parts of the Clint Eastwood um, Sergio Leone movies so I actually would really like to watch that movie someday so maybe that'll end up on a fresh five at some point or something after I take the time to see it yeah all right you want to go ahead and jump in the list then yeah that's good all right so number five movie on your list is 1987's Straight to Hell, directed by Alex Cox. Cox. It stars Cy Richardson, Joe Strummer, Dick Rude, Courtney Love, Dennis Hopper, Elvis Costello. It's a 38% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 58% from audiences. Tell us a little bit about the movie and why you have it on the list. Um, so it almost feels like maybe a vanity project for Cox. Um, follows three um, suit-wearing outlaws who fail at pulling off a heist and flee into the desert with a pregnant woman to kind of avoid um, retribution from their boss. Um, they come into a town of killers who are basically dressed like, um, I don't know, cowboys and um, mariachi and they're all addicted to coffee and then I don't know, they just sort of like hang out in the town and everybody ends up killing each other except for the one guy who gets away in the end. Um, sort of a loose, it's really kind of loosely, 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 loosely like plotted after Django, one of the early Django movies. Um, just in the sense of like the different factions and the one guy who's kind of like just trying to get by in the town full of killers, um, but full of uh, alternative or I don't even know, alternative at the time, probably indie or progressive rock like stars from the 1980s. Um, you mentioned Elvis Costello and Joe Strummer. It's also got um, uh, the Pogues are in it. Um, the Circle Jerks are in it. Um, Jarmish is in it too in a role um and really i don't know like i i like the look of it i really like the sense of humor in it a lot i know that you and i have had like kind of a conversation about our disagreement on that point but um i think that it feels like it has a really nice not nice but it has a really like kind of subversive but still like goofy like sensibility to it um, I feel like it's full of in-jokes that probably, even though I'm pretty familiar with, like, like the punk and alternative scene from that time period, um, that I don't know, like, if you could even get them all. But I like the actors in it. I like the, like, the earnestness, but also, like, the looseness with which they, like, you know, play those characters. And again, I think it's pretty funny. Um, and it still has the tropes of, you know, the... The town full of bandits. Um, Dennis Hopper has a pretty funny, like, small bit role where he's a <laughs> like a silent home salesman with a crate full of guns that comes into town with Grace Jones. Um, there's gunfights, you know. There's I don't know. 
and we talked about it. I was watching this last night when we were having a conversation. Um, feels in a lot of ways like maybe sort of influential in Tarantino. Yeah. Um, both in the Jules character um, and also in the fact that the main lady that kind of causes the um, a lot of the death in the town uh, is named Fabienne. Yeah. And that could just be a coincidence, but considering that the main character is a, a black man who's a killer who's smooth, who wears, you know, a black suit with a black tie and a white shirt. Yeah. Um, he actually is almost like a combination of uh, um, Jules and uh, Vincent in yeah. a lot of ways. Like with the way his hair slicked back and mm-hmm. some of his attitude, but also then his look. and Right. I don't know. I think maybe part of my appreciation, in fact, I don't, I don't think I know, Part of my appreciation for this movie comes both from my love of like this time period of music and the fact that there's a lot of music that I really like in the film. Like I think it's a really great soundtrack. Um, but just also kind of my nostalgia for like these people and how much they meant to me in my teenage years. And I think maybe I kind of see a little bit more in the movie than maybe you would if you didn't have that same like perspective. So. It could be, because um, I I don't have that, and yeah, like you said, I'm not gonna go too much into it. Yeah, I, I just it just wasn't my thing. Like this movie, um, I thought it looked nice at times. Um, I really like the setting. I really like like you know the set um, itself, like that they that they designed and some of the and shots I really liked. Destroyed. Hmm. Like subsequently destroyed, like they blew the shit out of that town right like, throughout right. the course of that movie. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Ebert gave this one and a half stars, and he says this proves that Alex Cox is quote human unquote. Um. Uh. So disappointed with it. He says that you know it was filmed in Spain on the sets that uh, Sergio Leone used for his spaghetti westerns, and that it's a send up of those movies. He guesses. Um. And. He says that um, that it doesn't have a comic or satirical point of view. He says Cox and co-writer Rick Rude have nothing they want to say about the Leone or Spaghetti Westerns. No angle approached in their material. No characters they want to develop in an interesting way. In fact, they scarcely bother to develop characters at all. A group of people arrive at the beginning of the movie, mill about aimlessly, and are mostly dead at the end of the movie. Um, but you see that there is a... You said before, you see that there is a kind of comic sense of humor to this and it's like so if his point of if if Ebert's point is that he doesn't see how this is a comic or satirical point of view on spaghetti westerns do you see the comedy relating in any way to kind of being a send-up in any way or is the comedy something distinct from that no no it's definitely a I mean like I said it's like direct direct adaptation of a movie a loose, loose but direct adaptation of a existing spaghetti western. Right. The Carbucci, um, I think it's Django, Kill, If You Live, Shoot. I can never remember what, how the title mm-hmm. is. Um, I mean, there's stuff like the lusty Hispanic like lady who needs quote-unquote saved in the town. Um, and in this movie, she basically is just like seducing everyone and kind of cuckolding her store owner husband and getting people killed and you know there's 
the gregarious but ultimately deadly like leader of the clan of bandits in the town that's got kind of a I don't know, like this counterculture vibe to them that's played different ways in different movies, and they've played that for jokes. <clears throat> um, you know, they're all singing, um, what is it, ketchup and salsa? Um, and dancing around in a circle? Like, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I don't think it's parody, under, like in the sense that you can, like the scary movie movies or whatever, or, you know, parodies of, like very specific things in horror films. I, I think it's more subtle than that, but I mean, I think Cox definitely shows that he kind of like loves those movies and, you know, he's making a movie with these people that he's friends with and that he respected. I mean, he was um, pretty influential and well-respected within that community in the 1980s because of Sid and Nancy and um, he knew a lot of those people. So I just, I don't know. Like I said, like there's definitely a feel in some ways of let's get our friends together and just make a movie. Um, but I think it works. I mean, especially for me, just because, like I said, I appreciate like those people and the setting and, you know. And I think it's like, because it takes place in the modern world, but, you know, as soon as they leave town, like their car stops working, they kind of all start to devolve into like these Western like western like the genre like stereotypes you know um and none of them can escape from it except for norwood who gets to ride away with the prostitutes at the end as the town is being like modernized by whatever the whatever the name of the fuel company is like freeland freeland fuel or whatever it is it's like taking over the town to dig their oil so i don't know maybe eber just doesn't get the joke right Maybe I'm reading too much into it, who knows? Okay. I really enjoy the movie, and it's something that um, I only found out about when I was a kid because I bought the soundtrack um, because of the bands that were on it and then felt like I had to see the movie um, where I'd be like a fraud. So, Right. This is, um, yeah, this is not one of those movies I'm going to use it as like a hill to die on um there are so many other movies that we've watched right, right. that um and, and will and that i'm watching now even that um i'm just <laughs> yeah look i mean like this is a hundred percent the nostalgia pick yeah. of this this list um, i'm not gonna pretend like yeah where you like a lot way. of the elements of the friends getting together i just i i that's all i saw was and it just didn't appeal to me that much yeah like yeah. and maybe that's what causes it to appeal to me but watching it last night you know, 20 some years removed from being in that mindset. Like I still had a good time watching it. Right. And it still made me laugh a number of times. Yep. Okay. So uh, number four on your list is Sukiyaki Western Django from 2008 and is directed by Takashi Miike. Um, it has a 56% from critics and a 57% from audiences. <clears throat> um, you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and uh why you mistakenly put it on the list <laughs> mistakenly um i would argue that it's still it merits like it it's not like it doesn't belong i just it wasn't the one i was thinking of right shit that was like when i almost made you watch fucking um stardust memories instead of right. uh, radio days right. because i got the two titles mixed up in my head um yeah. oh there's stardust memories not belong on that list um loose adaptation of the uh 
Henke, Hike and Genji War um, in Japan. Um, more appropriately, like a loose adaptation of both, you know, Yojimbo um, for Fistful of Dollars. Uh, I don't know, like Last Man Standing, like it's the same story um, with some minor like tweaks to it, you know, Drifter wanders into town. There's two gangs that are warring with each other. He sort of like uses both of them to kind of like manipulate to push them to continue to war with each other. Um, it turns out he has a hidden agenda behind it. Um, in this case, it's protecting um, this little boy. Um, it's a gun foo, I would call it, I guess. Um, in the same way that maybe, like, Equilibrium or um, a more stylized version of, like, what John Woo does, um, but also has, you know, samurai swords um, and tells the story of Yojimbo, like, this, um, uh, against the backdrop of feudal Japan mixed with, like, 1880s Nevada, maybe? Mm -hmm. um, I love the setting that it's in. Like, I like the fact that it's got, like, the traditional Japanese-style um, buildings, but set, like, against that backdrop that kind of feels like it's ripped right out of, um, like, Deadwood, maybe, um, with the mountains and, like, um, the kind of the desolation of the area. Like, it, it it feels like a Western, but is uniquely Japanese in its, its presentation. Um kind of odd to watch when all the dialogue is in English right. um, spoken by the actors who some of them I'm pretty sure didn't speak English and were just like saying the words mm -hmm. um, Quentin Tarantino was in it um, as a I guess like the framing narrator of the movie and also the guy who's like the mentor of one of the characters um, it's got some really good action sequences to it um, I think it's really fascinating to see that story told, even though, you know, it's been told as a Western, like kind of like melding those two movies together. I like think that, that's a really um, interesting um, experiment with the story. Um, and I think Mike does a really good job. Like I like Mike as a director. Um, I like some of the liberties he takes with the movie, like adding animation to it, um, doing the, title placards over certain people. I mean, there's small things that he does that I think are pretty cool. Um, and I like the way that he films violence. I think he does a good job um, filming the gunfights, filming um, some of the like more practical, like stunt action work to it. Um, and I think it's a really good send up of like the Western uh, genre that does it in a different way. That's pretty, um, pretty unique to it, to itself. When I was a little kid, I actually, not a little kid, when I was a teenager, I actually had this dream that I was going to make a movie where there was gunfighters that also carried samurai swords. Mm. Um, we've actually talked about this a little bit because we were, like, writing a right. movie that turned into a comic book, but it was yep. based off of those ideas, like, those settings and those characters. And so when I saw this movie for the first time, I was like, oh, man, like, that's really cool that, like, somebody actually did that at some point. Right. And I like Takashi Miki a lot, so. Yeah, yeah. It, it was 
was an enjoyable movie to watch. I'd never seen it before, even though I remember you telling me about it a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, let's see. Uh, Variety says that it's a pretty basic joke that wears out quickly um, and becomes kind of tiresome um, once the joke has been established. What is and the joke? I think the joke is that it's this weird way of like mixing what you said, feudal Japan and Nevada. Um, like just the, the stylistic elements are kind of like a joke. And I, I think that's what they're referring to. I don't um, think it's a joke. I think that's pretty condescending. I mean, it is variety. Um, that, that was a surprise to me. Um, or any critic, honestly. Um, right. I would say that it's somewhat tiresome because I think I don't know if it's too long. I can't remember how long this movie was. Ninety nine uh, minutes. That's it. Okay, it feels a lot longer than that. Um, and did I think watch... it's, I think it's because it's convoluted at so times. What, what version did you watch? In? Whatever, whatever Google Play has. Oh. Mm. Was it on Google Play? I don't was, know. I don't, no, this was I on don't Prime. Remember. No, it was on Prime. It was on Prime. For free, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. So there's a 128-minute version that is the Japanese theatrical release. Okay. And there's a 99-minute version that Mikkei cut down and released as the North American English-language release. Was the 99-minute what was on Prime? That's that's what we watched was okay. the 99-minute. But I didn't know if maybe you watched it some other no, way. No, 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 no. Um, but no, I just, I, I just felt like after a while it got really convoluted, like in terms of the plot, and which I, I mean, would it's the plot of Yojimbo, just with like one extra plot. Yeah, point. right. Yeah, I, don't I know. actually really, I really like that one extra. So the extra, the added plot element to it is that there's a a woman who lives in the town who happens to be, like, this famous gunslinger. Um, so when the first gunslinger kind of goes down, which happens in both, you know, Yojimbo and um, Fistful of Dollars, um, instead of him being the one that comes back, she kind of comes back and sort of starts the process of the saving the town and, like, fighting off both the... And I, I, I don't know, I liked it. Like, I didn't think it really added any kind of convoluted element to the plot maybe the maybe the scenes wear thin like go on too long then sometimes if 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 when i say it's convoluted it's like it's possible that it's like i just felt like i was losing track at times of like what the point of the scene was and maybe it's because the scenes stretch on too long at times maybe i don't know i mean i didn't feel that way or maybe i I just feel um, like like the way it looked, and maybe I just secretly just wasn't very interested in the movie. I don't know. Who knows? Right. I mean, it's um, possible. I, maybe I just didn't really care for it, even though I thought it was enjoyable. Maybe. I mean, I don't I really care for like a lot it. of Western plot. I mean, we've talked about this before, I think. It's like, I actually don't care for a lot of Western plots. Um, I think we talked about this in the modern Westerns, like, uh, where I actually like those modern Westerns a lot more than traditional Westerns because I find their plots to be kind of just meh. But you like, I mean, this isn't necessarily a Western plot. This is, I mean, I would almost call it like one of the, How much one of the most like 
time-worn like plots in all of modern cinema. I mean, I mean honestly, kind of let's way to say it, but how much of there between like feudal plots involving samurais and feudal Japan is there difference between that and westerns? I mean, sure. they, I mean, they, that's they, one of the they both influenced like, each other. I mean, so that's why I like the samurai movies so much. Right? I think. Yeah, and I like some of them. Like you know, I mean, I think I like the samurai movies just like I like the west. Like there's westerns that I really like, and there's samurai movies that I really like, and I think there's times samurai movies don't appeal to me as much just because they're samurai movies. I mean, I think it depends on the plot. I think it depends on a lot of things. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I for some reason I enjoy the setting of samurai movies more than I enjoy the setting of westerns for some reason but I'm also somebody who doesn't like the sun or the desert so I mean that it's already kind of like for a lot of westerns it's already like a got a, got a negative against it I mean I think that Japan kind of feels like that um, sometimes sometimes this movie reminded me um, especially in the portions where they're out kind of in the um, like the reeds like the fields um, reminded me of the oh man what are this the Musashi movies I guess I don't know if you've ever seen those mm-hmm. um, and also like there's some other there's another movie that's basically Yojimbo it's called Kill with an exclamation point at the end um, it's very similar to that just because that feels like a western too just in the way that like the desolation shows I don't uh, know. you had me watch that yeah you have that on DVD, right? I do. Yeah, I think you have me watching. Right now. <laughs> you have you had it for a while. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. You you had me watch that like ten, twelve years ago or something. Yeah, like it's that. probably I've probably had the movie for like sixteen years, seventeen yeah. years. Okay. Criterion did this really nice series of um, at the time like kind of forgotten uh, samurai classics, um, and that was one of them. So, yeah, so, I mean, I think that if you know who Takashi Miike is, you should already have kind of an idea of whether you'd like this movie or not. Um, And if you've seen Yojimbo or For a Few Dollars, For a Fistful of Dollars, or Last Man Standing, like, you know the plot, and I don't know, but I think it's fine. Although I I would say, like, uh, despite some of, like, the filmed violence, this feels like a more family-friendly Miike than... Which is oh yeah, not, to, not to say that it's family friendly, but a more family friendly Mike than a lot of his other movies. I mean, it's more goofy violence, right. not not, sure. not goofy, but definitely like it feels very Hollywood. Like it's not gratuitous, mm-hmm. you know. It's not Ichi the Killer. It's right, right, right. Anyway, so all right. but I think it's worth watching, and it's free on Prime. And yep, yep. You know, hour and a half out of your life. All right, so number three on your list is the film that Pauline Kael was referencing that originated this term, which is El Topo. It is filmed in 1971. It is directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky, also stars the director. Uh, It also stars Mara Lorenzio, David Silva, and Brodus Jodorowsky. It has a 79% from critics and an 84% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie um, and 
of I mean I, I think it's obvious why it's on the list probably. But. Yeah. I mean um plot wise I don't know what to tell you. It's um gunfighter clad all in black is riding across the desert with his naked son. Um leaves his son with a bunch of monks, takes up with this woman, goes on a quest to murder like the four uh, what do they call them? Like the four greatest gunslingers, but they call them something else. Yeah. Um and then it just is weird. You know, there's like the last gunslinger kills himself, so um, El Topo is, which stand, which it means the mole in Spanish. Um, yeah. There's some significance there that you can like lean. Um, cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I kills don't himself. Think there he, there's bees all over the graves. Um, he gets like saved and. Nurse back to health by a bunch of disfigured midgets. I don't know, midgets isn't politically correct. Little people. Um, it's a pretty, it's, it's in my opinion, like, probably the most polarizing movie on this list. And in terms of, like, just you and I talking about movies, Yodorowsky is maybe one of the most, maybe the most polarizing director between the two of us, just in terms of, like, style over substance or how easy it is to interpret what substance is there if that makes sense mm-hmm. um i think that he's a brilliant director in terms of his aesthetics i think that he can capture a scene as well if not better than almost anyone um i think that sometimes the meaning behind a symbolism is inscrutable and i feel like that's probably on purpose like 90 percent of the time Um, There's some stuff in this movie, I mean, just in, like, the look of the El Topo character um, alone, you know, the the round, like, I don't know what you call it, like, settlers, like, fedora, um, the black outfit, the guns, the beard, um, it's just, it's so memorable, and it's something that... um, has spawned almost like a, I mean, it obviously has like a cult following to it, but there's comics based on it. Like Yodorowsky's like written like further material on it, like in this world or whatever. Um, there's the Sons of El Topo. There's Yodorowsky. I don't know if you know who, um, oh shit, I'm going to say his name wrong, Mobius, um, the comic book artist. Yeah, like uh-huh. Yodorowsky and Mobius made a comic that has um, the El Topo character in it. Hmm. Um, and it's just like we've well, have we, we 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 talked about Holy Mountain, haven't we, on the no. podcast? Nope. It's nope. one of those things where I guess I'd saved you that. It's a small courtesy. Yeah. One of those things where it's a complete. It's an almost completely abstract film that gains more of a plot. More of a semblance of a plot, like the more it goes on, but Agreed. still is about. This guy who, I, like, Yodorowsky's talking about things that don't have any bearing, I think, on today. And, again, kind of inscrutable, like, to figure out, like, what his ultimate purpose is. But I think his stuff always looks beautiful. Um, I always think it's interesting to watch. Um, I think that El Topo is an iconic, like, cult film. 
one of the first movies that I saw that I would consider to be like a true like underground classic mm-hmm. um, in the sense that like you couldn't show this to 75% of film goers and have them be interested in it and that might even be like a low estimate but I think the people that like it like you really like it a lot and I really yeah. like I love the way the movie looks and when Pauline Kael referenced that at calling it an acid western the reason she was doing that is because in the theaters when it was being shown at midnight and stuff like that the people that were going to see it were on acid well not if not on acid the types that would take acid um and, and like the color of the sky the color of the sand like everything in it is just surreal to the point of being like hyper real in a lot right. of ways sure and that's just the way his movies look like you know he will paint like elements of like the scenery and stuff to evoke certain colors or feelings or whatever I don't know. He's I I think he's a brilliant director. I don't ever pretend to understand a lot of the symbolism that that man uses, but I think that he knows how to frame a scene, he knows how to film a scene, and like it's worth being a little perplexed sometimes just to get to experience like the visuals that he um that he's able to produce. So so. Right, I agree with all that, and I think. And there's the feeling, I, like to, to me, one of the things I like. I almost kind of like not knowing what a movie's about. Like I like the feeling of, like a non-understandable mythology, kind of, mm-hmm. or like that there's like a hidden secret to what you're seeing over the course of a film. Like I think there's a, I think there's kind of a magic to that when it works, and I'm not saying that it always works, but I think in in his movies particularly, like especially El Topo and um, Holy Mountain and uh, Santa Sangre, um, there's definitely that feeling to it, like where, you know, you're you're kind of entranced by what you're seeing, even if you don't quite get it, and it kind of has like a, I don't know, almost like a zen quality to it, maybe? Hmm. Maybe I'm romanticizing. So listen, so listen to this. So um, Ebert, um, in his original review, um, wrote that Jodorowsky lists symbols and mythologies from everywhere, Christianity, Zen, discount store, black magic, you name it. He makes not the slightest attempt to use them so they sort out into a single logical significance. Instead, they're employed in a shifting prismatic way, casting their light on each other instead of on the film's conclusion. The effect resembles Eliot's The Wasteland, and especially Eliot's notion of shoring up fragments <laughs> of mythology against the ruins of post-Christian, uh, the post-Christian era. Um... So yes, I think your like uh, fascination and um, to some degree with those these type of movies, um, where it's like it is hazy, it's vague, it's like you know there's symbols, but like where do they lead and stuff like that is right. something that you because you, people don't know, I guess it's like you love Elliot's Wastelands and have studied that for a lot of your life, um, uh, off and on, and <clears throat> so. Yeah, I mean, it, it, like well, as soon as I read that, I laughed because it was like, right, okay, this is why, you know, like you know, because I'm right. uncom- I'm uncomfortable with that as much as I like parts of the wastelands as a total as a whole. I'm uncomfortable with the lack of meaning um, behind the the entirety of the work. Um, so something like this makes me uncomfortable. The 
the reason, so I don't like, I think there's things that are supposed to be funny in El Topo at times, um, in a, in a dark kind of hostile way, um, with townspeople and stuff like that. And I don't like that element in Jodorowsky that kind of like, I think, um, critiquing humor or something like that, like that he has at times. Um, and he has some of that early in the movie, and I was texting you when I was first watching it, and it was like, I was like, oh, the, dear God. What the fuck did you make me watch? Right, like, why are you making me do this? Like, and then it's like the plot started forming more, with especially when he... Going to kill the four guns. Yes, right. And that's when the yeah. plot really begins, and but right. it, it takes you 35 minutes to get there. Yeah, and, well, um, yeah. So the opening scene's brilliant. I mean, like, the opening, like, you know, like, seven minutes or so on the desert with him and the child and making the child, like, bury um, the photo of his mother and um, what was the toy? Was it a, was it a ball? Was yeah. Sort of, you know, something like that. Um, it's like, like, that, that's a brilliant sequence, like, you know, and then, yeah, it gets into the stuff with the town. It's like, oh, God. And, and then the plot, like, starts to form. Um I just don't think that his symbols actually have meanings that connect together to form like a a whole into like a philosophy or anything like that. Where the number one movie on the list, and it's one of the distinctions I'm going to end up making with that movie, I think, is like, I feel like that does. I feel it has, like, that has a through line, even though it has a lot of symbolism in it. It has right. a through line that you can make a, you can you can figure out what the symbols are kind of referencing and you can kind of take away something from it where it's like, I don't know if you take away meaning from this necessarily. Like a t in Toto, you don't take away a meaning. Sure. Um, I mean, I that, think you take what you, I think you have to be more creative with a movie like El Topo. You, you, you have to make more illogical leaps to ascertain like the meaning of certain parts of that movie. Does that make sense? And sometimes you don't get anything, you know, right. like sometimes it's just like, I don't know what the fuck that means, but right. like, I like stuff like that. Like I like things that are like, I don't know, like an obscure puzzle basically. Yeah. I it's mean, I, cause I'm not a fan of like puzzles or sure. I mean, I think you can make the argument that Lynch can be the same way. Sure. 100%. Um, although I, but I like David Lynch and I, and, and uh, like, and, and his stories and I'm in this, and, and I, I don't even like dislike the story, you know, I mean, I, it's not that I dislike it. It's like, a, I don't know. It's the, the parts do not equal the whole. Sure. And, and, and to me, the difference between somebody like Lynch and somebody like um, Jodorowsky is that Lynch, even at his weirdest, is always telling you a story. And he always makes the story the thing, you know? Right. Like, even when it's like weird ass fucking rabbit head people right. in like a fake TV show. Sure you still have a whole narrative happening around that right. incident, you know, like that weird instance. Whereas yeah. Jodorowsky is just like, this is not a reference to El Topo, but like, fuck it, here's some frogs with like Pope hats on jumping around. Right. Like a scale model of... Right, know, and, and, and here's the difference and I think, between this, because you, you said that this is like a, a big like sticking point with us as this director, and I agree, and I think you were very politic in the way you laid that out so that um, it didn't like get 
become any more any worse than what this has been so far um but i agree with you i think he's an amazing director i think the way he frames shots i think that the way he films like absolutely amazing i actually didn't mind this movie and in the end i liked el topo um despite the 20 minutes towards the beginning and despite the fact that it doesn't really connect or I think ultimately have a lot of meaning to it like as a, as a whole I ultimately liked it overall I thought it was you know I I wish there would have been more of a narrative I wish that like there would have been that symbolism would pay off in other ways but I didn't think any of this was necessarily really pretentious I thought Holy Mountain which we'll end up talking about someday I thought it was extremely pretentious what, what, what did I say last night? Movies that Frank loves that Chris hates? Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Except you'd get to pick them. So you probably wouldn't pick Holy Mountain. Well, no. I mean, it would be the things I, I'd have to pick the, unless, I I would be picking the things that I hate the most. Out of the That's what I did. Love. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I really dislike that movie. So I really dislike that experience. So when I watched it. Do you think that, do you think that El Topo goes back to what um, Rosenbaum said, like, is is a critique of, like, society and capitalism? And Absolutely it is. The male-dominated, the male dominated, like, patriarchy of Western civilization. And maybe that's why it's easier to kind of reconcile with, whereas, like, Holy Mountain is about, like, the excesses of the church and, I don't know... Christianity in general, you know what I mean? Like it's right. much more, um, I like nebulous concepts. Where so maybe that's why it maybe feels, like yeah. worse to you. Well, I mean, it's like because they're more nebulous, it's very possible that it's like it'll the, the more nebulous it is, the further he can go with the extreme extremity of the symbols. Right. And well, he was. Uh, he was also very specifically criticizing the church as it existed at the time in that movie. Right. So it's one of those things like, you know, it's like watching British comedy from the seventies. Like, I don't fucking know who like Nigel Weatherborn or whatever, like some person they're making reference to and all these British people are like, Oh, so, so droll. And it's like, I don't know what that is. So and a lot of, I think Yodorowsky kind of falls into that where he's making a reference to something that's very, planted firmly in his sphere of knowledge of the time so it doesn't necessarily like relate to you today right yeah. although i think the frog was jumping all over the fucking uh scale model of whatever the mayan temples is pretty amazing i love that scene but again this is holy known not right right not not right. yeah um but yeah, I, I I enjoyed this much more than I did Holy Mountain, um, and I think it's pre- like you were saying pretty at the very beginning of when you were talking. It's like I think there's stuff in this that's really iconic, and it's probably worthy of lasting for as long as it has in terms of its influence. I mean, just the image alone of that of of, of El Topo, like in the beginning with the child and everything, is by itself, you know, noteworthy and iconic. Yeah. All right. So number two on your list, uh, another movie from 1987 is Cobra Verde, uh, directed by Warner Herzog. Stars Klaus Kinski, Jose Lugoy, and King Ampal. 
Uh, it has an 82% from critics and a 76% from audiences. Uh, that, <laughs> not I, I just realized, like, this is a hell of a director list, Frank, of, out of these movies. Yeah. Uh, like, that, that's a... Um, so anyway, go, you want to tell us a little bit about Cobra Verde and uh, what you like about it so much? So this is the last collaboration, the fifth and last collaboration between Kinski and uh, Herzog. Um, Kinski is a... He's a former... I can't remember what his profession is. Um, he was successful and then his, he failed and then he got stuck doing this mining. Um, and then he realized that his employers were kind of like exploiting him financially. So he killed his, kills his boss and goes out into the wilds and becomes this infamous criminal. Um, then he meets the, this dude who runs this slave trade in this town and gets hired because the guy's impressed with him and impregnates all the guy's daughters. And then the guy finds out, oh shit, this is Cobra Verde, the, uh, um, the famous criminal. And so he's afraid to kill him, but he can't let him go unpunished. So he basically sends him to Africa to like reinvigorate the slave trade, which, um, Kinski does, uh, with various success and then basically like finds that all of his assets have been seized back home and he's an outlaw again um, by the English and tries to leave Africa and basically like dies. Um, it's not necessarily, it's, it's the least Western movie on this list, I guess, mm-hmm. but it still feels like a Western to me just because of the, the outlaw elements. Um, even though it's it's in where is it Portugal and Africa I guess is where it was probably filmed. Um, where it was it filmed? Looks, yeah, where where it, I know like where it's set. I'm pretty sure oh. they filmed in Africa too. They did. Yeah, they definitely. Um, it was it was Ghana, Brazil, and Colombia. Those are places that it was shot at. It 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 feels like a western. Like it looks like it. Like the the combination of like like dry desolation and like danger i mean i know that it like takes place next to an ocean but um it's got that feeling of like i don't know, like the old like spanish town they never find in a western and um one of my favorite kinski roles in terms of like his collaborations with herzog this might be mm-hmm. number two next to aguirre um, I just like the relish with which he like portrays this kind of morally despicable character. Yeah. Um, I love Klaus Kinski, like full admission is one of my, like, I will pretty much like any movie that has Klaus Kinski in it almost guaranteed just because I get to watch him act. It's like him and Donald Sutherland. And I don't know, there's a couple other like people that, no matter what, like, I always want to watch their movies, but Kinski's just, like, I love the way he looks, I love the expressions he makes, I love the almost, like, wry psychosis that he gives over to a role where he plays unhinged characters in a way that feels dangerous all the time. Like, you can almost feel, like, the pending explosion on that set as soon as the take you're watching is over. Yeah, and I like that energy, um, and I think that Herzog really captures like that dangerous feeling of him as like a bandit, almost like a bandit king, 
mm-hmm. like a guy who's the ultimate outlaw and people are just too like no one's able to really ever rein him in or take him down and he's able to get out of like any situation it's almost like he's like the ultimate um like tweener heel from like I'm using wrestling terms mm-hmm. where like he's definitely a bad guy but you still kind of root for him in a lot of ways so yeah no, I agree. I mean, there's um, there's there's uh, so many brilliant sequences in this movie. Um, uh, the uh, crippled, um, young like bar owner um, in the beginning, like where they end up like drinking together early on, I think is a brilliant scene um, yeah. with those two. Um, when he's the the wildness in his eyes and expression when he's training all of the uh, everybody to become warriors, like when they're getting ready to go storm the, the the palace, like when he's training all those and like like showing them and teaching them, like there's this manic, crazed kind of like energy to Kinski, right. but like the way that Herzog films it in ter- in terms of cutting medium shots from a number of different angles so that you feel like just as kind of you feel that chaos just as much as he's walking through all these people that are training the fight and the chaos of that situation you feel like you're in that and then there's like ways where it's like almost the camera like will like move and spin a little bit and it's just really disorienting but it like you feel like the the, the power like the 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 um, the, the energy of like that whole situation, and like the yeah, like you said, the look on Kinski, the, the way Kinski can like emote, um, is is absolutely astounding. And yeah. I really, I really enjoy this movie. I I enjoy every Herzog movie that you make me watch and say like, oh, I need to watch more. But it's like I, it's just not something I ever seek out. But every single time yeah. I watch one, it's I'm amazed by how powerful these movies are a lot of times uh, you're um you're pretty much getting close to the end of like all the ones that i think you really need to see yeah there's like maybe four more that you should probably watch right. i think we'll get to them at some point yeah but this is um kind of right this is a really good movie um a lot of the critiques of this movie and herzog himself said that he had a lot of regrets about this movie but i mean this is the final kind of like showdown between Kinski and Herzog at this point, you know, and I don't know right. how much that interrupted the filming. But, um... They had to replace the cinematographer. Right. The director right. of I photography. Did, I, I guess did read, yeah. better way to say it. Right, I did read that, yeah. But, um, a lot, a lot of the criticism of this is that people feel that it's, um, plotting at times. Um, they feel that it, um, like, uh, so J.R. Jones, the Chicago reader, I don't know why Chicago reader critics are so negative all the time, but um, he says that um, it's too blankly amoral to sustain interest, but acknowledges that the filmmaking itself, like from from Herzog, is um, you know has moments of what did he say, haunting poetry and stuff like that. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, the point is, this is kind of blankly amoral. Like this character is blankly amoral. And he has, like, he films it in a way, much like he does a lot of the stuff I've seen. Certainly, Aguirre. Like, where it's, like, almost like you're this kind of um, removed voyeur into this thing. 
and he's always stepping back from his subjects a lot of times. Oh, yes. No, and he's, le- he's, he's and letting you make the judgment. Exactly. He's forcing you yeah. to be the to make the moral judgment on his characters. Like he he removes himself from the culpability he places completely on you. Right. Right. So you're just as culpable as his characters. So like when you're like invested in Klaus Kinski, who's a monster, mm-hmm. it's kind of almost commenting that maybe you're a little bit of a monster yourself. But sure. And while he's a monster, there's also times where it's like he's on the side of in the situation that he's in, he's on the side of right. Sure. And you got to deal with that too, and you have to wrestle with it. So I, I, a lot of these movies, I, I yeah, I, I think I, I never realized like how brilliant Herzog was, like in terms of the way that he films these things and and does exactly what you said. Yeah, it makes you like make the determination, makes you culpable, um, depending on the inter- the the judgment you make. Um, but yeah, I thought this was really good. I really enjoyed watching it. I was captivated by it as I was watching it. Um, cause I'll be honest with some movies, sometimes it's like, I'll turn to my phone, um, you know, right. while it's on and those kind of things. Like this is one of those movies where it's like, I needed to respond to a text and I paused it <laughs> because I didn't want to like actually miss like, yeah, that's good. I'm glad you really enjoyed yeah. it that much. Yeah. I always find his movies like just engrossing. Um, it's like, he, he, he definitely like has something some like weird connection to like the like collective unconscious when you're watching yes Yes. like draws things out of you that you don't necessarily think about usually or makes you think about things that you might not otherwise consider but yeah and the last um, and the last image of this one is just as haunting to me as the last image of agira um the I, I don't even know how to describe it the 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 african who is like deformed and yeah, like polio polio like on the beach like walking like basically on all fours like towards him as he's kind of collapsing unable to get the you know boat like to the safety like it's 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 a it's a haunting image um of i'm assuming that is a slight thing where it's like that there is a judgment that's being made there. Um, it's like, this is the, this is the sin coming back to haunt him in some ways. Like that, that this is, you know, like the, yeah. Um, kind of like the, I think the monkeys were like this, like almost like little joke, this judgment uh, on the de-evolution of the character in Aguirre. Like, I, I think this is kind of most like the ghost of, like, his, you know, what he's done haunting him in some ways at the end. Yeah. But, yeah. No. But, uh, yeah, I, I really like this movie a lot. Yeah, really good. Yeah. Okay. So, number one on your list, then, is 1972's Greaser's Palace, directed by Robert Downey Sr., Stars Albert Henderson, Michael Sullivan, Alan Arbus, and Luana Anders. It is a 50% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 61% from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and uh, why it's number one on the list? Um, <laughs> Loaded question. So where El Topo may be the most like surreal and abstract, movie on this list. Greaser's Palace is by far the most absurd movie on the list. Yeah. But 
in a way that still contains like a really strong narrative and a lot of entertainment value. Um, it's basically the story of Christ, maybe. I mean, definitely, it's but definitely. like with liberal interpretations taken as a certain events um, through the lens of a Western, but also with a just weird mix match amalgamation of like a bunch of different like if if Straight to Hell is Alex Cox gathering all of his favorite people together just to like shoot a movie in the desert this is almost the same thing but with a guy that has like so many more crazy ideas of like what should you know I don't know it's Jesus is on his way Jesse the Jesus character is wearing like a zoot suit Mm -hmm. with spats and white gloves and he's on his way to Jerusalem to meet the agent Morris to get a contract as a singer actor Um, singer singer actor dancer singer actor dancer right my bad um, he runs into this town that's run by a gruff but well-meaning, constipated, uh, like tyrant named Seaweedhead Greaser, um, who has a son, Lamy Homo, who's a disappointment to him all the time. Um, there's a woman settler traveling with her family um, who all die, but she keeps getting resurrected from the dead. The Holy Ghost is a dude in a sheet with holes cut in it and a fedora who's kind of wandering the countryside like cause of mischief. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's an absolutely ridiculous movie a lot of the times. Um, It definitely is 100% like irreverent in relation to the Bible and like any story in the Bible. Um, but not to the spirit of it, I don't think. No, 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 no. I, I, I think it's very. It hears very. It, it, it hews very closely to the stories of the Bible. It just tells them in like a ridiculous and like often incredibly profane way. Right. Um. But it's and somehow in doing that, I would argue, still stays closer to the spirit of the New Testament. Yeah, that's agreed. You know, it 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 paints Jesus as almost like a reluctant savior. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like he's a guy that just kind of wants to live his life, but can't pass up helping someone with his abilities. Right. Um. In this case, which is the laying on of hands and saying, "If you feel, you heal," and bringing people back to life or curing their maladies. Um. I think this movie is eminently quotable. I think it's incredibly funny. Not in like a uproarious like laugh out loud guffawing kind of way but in a like you recognize the cleverness of this movie all mm-hmm. the time like while you're watching it um i think that uh, it's directed you know robert downey senior um i think that downey has a great eye for the look of a western like that, that it's another thing that in an acid western is important to me is the idea that um it still looks like a Western in a lot of ways. 
like it feels like you could be watching like a Sergio Leone movie, even if you're watching something completely removed from that. Um, and it definitely hits that mark. Um, I love all the actors in it. Uh, interesting notice got um, Tony Basil from um, the singer. Tony yes. Basil mm-hmm. plays the um, young Indian woman who um, does like all the hand motions, the topless one. Right. Talking to like the medicine man in the dugout or whatever. Um, I don't know. It's it's an amazing movie. It's a movie that one of my friends showed me. Um, he had rented it and we watched it, and it was one of those things like where we then immediately watched it again because it mm-hmm. was so crazy. Um, and I feel like every time I see it, it, it feels that way. It's like it feels new and fresh and absolutely ridiculous. I kind of want to watch it again after this, honestly, because Frankie wasn't here when I watched it the first time, and I sort of want to make him watch it. Yeah, and I was telling you, I feel bad that I didn't watch it again, even though I watched it for the first time like a month ago. Um, I sh- I feel like I should have watched it again before we did this podcast, um, because I think there's that much. What it is is, I think I I think I get the movie. I I completely almost like because uh, I thought about it a lot today, but I wish I would watch it again to confirm that I get everything in that movie um and this is where i'm talking about the difference between this and el topo like while you're right it's just a retelling of like you know like you know of, of christ's story this is a right. christ allegory but um but i feel like there's something to take away from it like even beyond just the christ allegory especially with we were talking about a little bit last night on zoom like you know with seaweed head seaweed head <laughs> greaser and right. his constipation it's like i'm pretty sure homo has a is a pun not only is he a homosexual but also i think homo just meaning man i think he's man, right, kind of right, rep- right. representative of um of, of like the everyman in a lot of ways and you know that that father-son dynamic there where like you know he's disappointed uh with his son and you know kills him um you know before he's resurrected and you actually remember the line when he gets resurrected every time right don't you it's um i was dreaming that i was Float, swimming, swimming. A, yeah, swimming here. Yeah. Swimming in a rainbow, and the rainbow was full of babies, and they was naked, and then I turned into the perfect smile. Right, yeah, um, right. Which, what a beautiful way, as ridiculous and absurd as it is, though. What a beautiful way to like talk about. I'm assuming heaven. You know, right. like it's it's uh, it's it, like that kind of stuff. Like as ridiculous as it is, that's like to me, it feels still feels meaningful. Yeah, yeah. Always. Um, and so it's like I think he represents, you know, um, like a lot of father and sons, the idea of like this disappointment and stuff like that. And, um, but it's like you know, seaweed head, like you said, he is kind of even though he's a tyrant, like he wants people to know that he loves them because he does. He, he sure, he's taking them. care of them, right? Um, even if he does it in an imperfect way. Right. Um, and, but he has the constipation, I think represents all the hatred and like, you know, like, you know, towards his own son, like, you know, towards like, you know, the fact that he's homosexual, um, you know, towards, and all, himself. towards himself, right. For the things that he does, I think at times, you know, um, how he runs the town sometimes and how he 
is insecure and in, like you know how he expresses himself and that constipation's all is literally all the shit <laughs> you know right. in somebody and it's like you know after the experience with jesse being in the town and stuff like that and like kind of like reconnecting with his son he's finally able to get the shit out um and you know while it's vulgar maybe and like you know like absurd it's like there there's a message there um and i think i don't take that message away from el topo in any way because that's it's not there i get it so i can i can more readily um i think this is actually funny and like you said not haha funny but i think it's funny and i think i can take something away from it and um so f- for that reason alone, it's like I'll always tend towards this than I will something that's like so abstract that I can't take anything away from it. Yeah. And I think that the difference is that Downey wants you to be in on the joke with him and right. expects you to understand it and Yodorowsky doesn't care. Right. Right. Yodorowsky is yeah. making a movie for himself. Downey's making a movie for you. Yes. But that's why, I mean, that's why I think they're both fascinating because I think that I think that they both can be challenging in their own way. Um, like, I think the challenge of Greaser's Palace is not being, like, not dismissing it out of hand and actually thinking about what the scenes are about and what the characters represent and pulling, like, meaning from it while still appreciating it as a comedy. Whereas the challenge in a Yodorowsky movie is like digging through the denseness of his like mise-en-scene and his imagery and whatever and finding the meaning there for yourself because he's not giving it to you. But Grisha's Palace is an amazing movie. I think that it's imminently watchable. I think even though it's really weird, as long as you're not offended by nudity or foul language, yeah. Or like vulgar concepts. Like, man, it is it is a great movie and it's really entertaining and definitely like a hidden gem from the nineteen seventies, I think, that has sort of fallen by the wayside. But glad to see that it's on Prime, so it's readily available to anyone that wants right. to watch it. Yeah. This ended up this is probably one of the my favorite movies that I've seen as a watching experience out of the movies I haven't seen that you've made me watch. Look, you got two of them on this right, list. Yeah, that's true, because I really like Back to back. Movies. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you got to see El Topo. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, like I said, I enjoyed El Topo. Like, overall. But yeah, I really liked Grease's Palace a lot. I Again, it was another one I was kind of just captivated by, but I was captivated not by necessarily the artistry. But I was just captivated by how fucking absurd and irreverent and um but meaningful it was like like i said it has a lot of heart it has a lot of heart behind it just despite the irreverence it definitely does um downey senior is an interesting guy so uh his previous movie was um putney swope um which is a criticism of like madison avenue slash like advertising agencies and executives and also kind of like a criticism of racism in the country and bigotry and like stereotypical like ways of thinking. Um, But it's also a really funny movie. Um, He made a movie in the nineties called Hugo pool with Downey jr. Mm -hmm. When he's an adult 
and Alyssa Milano that's um also weird and decent, but not as good as Breacher's Palace or Putney Swope. And that's pretty much it. But he's a pretty interesting guy, and obviously, like, Danny, Danny Jr. has um, turned his life around to become, like, one of our more successful and popular actors. And he's in this movie for a little bit. He is, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, and I, I, I have to, I have to imagine that that sense of humor you see in Downey Jr. that's just kind of inherent in his personality. Um, I don't know what his father was like, but I have to imagine there has to be a similarity there, probably, like, yeah. or at least someone who like was at least also clever, witty, you know, like in, you know, something along those lines. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting that he only, I didn't know about that movie from the 90s, I thought he only had the two movies, but... Yeah, let me see. Maybe 95 or 96? Let me look it up real quick. Um, mid-90s, anyway. Yeah. And it was one of those things where, like, he hadn't made a movie in forever. He's still alive, that's crazy, I thought he was dead. Is he? 84 years old, yep. Hmm. Lives in New York, New York. Interesting. Yeah, I always um, assumed he was dead. Yeah. yeah, he made a bunch of movies that I've never seen. But Putney Swope was actually before this movie. I'm sorry. Um, oh, Up the Academy. I remember that, that movie's okay. He made To Live and Die in L.A. Really? Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Hugo Pool is 97, and he had made a bunch of movies before that I guess I just never. Oh, you know what? Maybe he was, um, he directed a lot of TV, too, for a while. Um, plays a character in Boogie Nights. Hmm. Oh, I guess he acted in a bunch of stuff, too. Yeah, I know he's an actor too. Yeah, but he's an actor in *To Live and Die in L.A.*. That is, he didn't direct it. Gotcha. Okay. <clears throat> I'm thinking. I'm thinking of the right movie. That's William Peterson, right? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Freakin directed that. Yeah, Freakin movie. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. It's interesting. I'll have to. I have to rewatch that when I see it for free somewhere. Cause it's I been watched, a really long time since I've seen it. I wouldn't mind seeing it again. I watched it when I was like 21 and or so, r- roughly around there, 2021, 20, and I wasn't a big fan. But um, I also kind of half-watched it, if I remember correctly. So uh, I'll have to watch it again at some point. So. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Yeah. It seems like it's an action thriller, like kind of like half-noir, like, you know, directed by freaking. It's like it feels like I should like it. But, um I don't know. I'm um I'm kind of hit or miss with Freakin a lot of the times. Um, like as much as I love some of his movies, I'm not like a fan of others. Right. Um. Really hard though to like argue against somebody that made The Exorcist and fucking French Connection. Sure, sure. But like cruising, I'm not a fan of cruising. We have a we have a friend of ours that um friend of the podcast. Zeke Lawrence that loves that fucking movie. And man, do I hate the movie. Fucking Jade, you know. I don't... He did you Jade? Know, What's that? He did the Jade? He did Jade. Yeah. Did he? 
the Caruso. Um, what's yeah, her name? Yeah, Linda, Linda really? Brentino. Got pubes in a in little like curio boxes. Huh. I don't know who I thought did that movie, but I did not think it was freaking. Well, get it in your mind. He directed a movie <laughs> Edu- with. Educate um, yourself to this reality. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, he did a did a horror movie in the early two thousands with Ashley Judd called Bug, which is oh um, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, like a germaphobe nightmare. I've it's, seen it. It's, yep, it's horrific. Yeah, um, yep. but that's him. So. I agree. Yeah, I I like that movie actually. It's good. Yeah. I mean, it's a movie I've thought about putting on a list before. Like, yeah. if we ever do like a top five, I don't know, like creepy, crawly horror. I want to say I watched Bug and um, Hostel on the same day. That's a one-two punch. Yeah. Oh. Is Hostel the one with Mike in it, or is that Hostel Two actually? No, he's in he's in Hostel One. The first he's one, the, um, you know, he's the guy at the end of the movie where they have everybody come into the um. Yeah. Well, he comes. He comes out of the place, right out of the hostel, and is like, "You'll lose all your money in there," or something like that. Is uh, that his line? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I was gonna say he plays a Japanese guy, but that's because he's a Japanese guy, right? So. Right. right. Kind of a racist statement, but he, it's, it's him. Gotcha. Okay. Um. So yeah, this is. Yeah. It was a fun list for me to watch again. Right. I, think. I really enjoyed watching all these movies. I wish you would have enjoyed Straight to Hell more, but um. I don't know. I really got a lot out of, like, a really, a lot of enjoyment out of watching that movie last night. Yeah. Like I said, not a hill that I'm going to die on. Um, and I'm trying to, like, be just more accepting of things. Um, like, in the sense just wait of, like, till the avant-garde harm. That's, that, that's just not for me. Um, but um, I really just like that movie a lot, yeah. <laughs> really that's the like hill that. you're going to die on. Uh one of those movies, yes, would be a hill that I would be uh, that I would die on. Um, Love that movie too. Mm, Jesus. Um, but yeah. Oh, he that... directed a uh, Killer Joe Friedkin. What's that? That's the um, McConaughey. Uh, fuck, what is that woman's name? Um, Juno Temple. Emil Hirsch is in it. So. I never seen this movie. Hitman serial killer that gets hired to murder somebody, but then like kills the wrong person. You never watched it? It was really good. Mm-mm. I liked it a lot. It was um, years that movie, 2011, so almost 10 years old now. Oh man, I wasn't watching movies then. It's free somewhere. If you ever get the chance to see it, you should watch it. Man, McConaughey's um, look. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look it up right now. Um. <clears throat> And it's going to be free for Frank, not free for Chris. I don't know if it's free for anybody. I think I bought it or rented it somewhere. Man, Google's such a pain in the ass anymore. God, I... Google, using Google, like a Chrome on your computer is, like, does not give you the same results of things um, <clears throat> that you would get on your phone. Yeah, completely different. Okay, it's on Tubi. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, it's on Hulu too. But I I can't trust Hulu. It could mean it's on Showtime. Oh yeah, I looked up Nick Cage today. Oh my god, I can't wait for the Quick Cage this week, dude. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, I looked up Nick Cage today on Hulu, and like they had like four movies and everything else is like free with your Showtime subscription. 
free with your HBO subscription. Like you in HBO or Hulu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Why this? Is why I'm subscribed in the first place. <laughs> don't you have a Showtime subscription though? Oh, I do, but not yeah, through right. Hulu. So that's how they get you. <laughs> so there's some things that, and you know what? Subscribing to the premium channels through Hulu, mm-hmm. you got to subscribe to their TV package first, which is sixty dollars a month, mm. and then add on Showtime or HBO. It's it's. Oh my fucking, god! Like I don't know how like Hulu makes sense. Like who's doing that shit? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. I guess enough. I don't know. Um. Okay, so it's on Tubi. So yeah, maybe I can watch something. Um. All right. So we will yeah, be taking so, a break next week. Yep. Right. Um, and we will be coming back with the top five thrillers of the 2000s um that week and then at the end of the month we will be doing the top five best movies that haven't aged well Uh, i'm really excited for that list that's that's a fun list yeah i'm halfway through um like some five-hour movie right now like also one of them uh one of those movies and um it's not that long but it feels that long um i've watched two of them so far so yeah it's, it's gonna be a really interesting list um uncomfortable list at times for some of the topics but um but yeah that's it's an interesting list that, <clears throat> and then october we've decided now we will be doing the top five because we will be doing horror related uh throughout the uh, month of october like we have been for the past two years so um we'll be doing the top five avant-garde horror movies and then we will be doing the first ever horror fresh five um, which is where Frank uh, goes the just picks the top five movies that he's watched in say the past like three to six months or so, um, and that allows us usually to talk about like some more recent movies. And then we're also going to be doing a first watch with a friend of the podcast, uh, Orion Wallmaker and Michael Bledsoe for Child's Play, the original Child's Play. Um, so that will be our month of October as well. So those are some things to look forward to. Um, any final thoughts tonight, Frank? No. Um, yeah, looking forward to the horror movies in uh, October. Um, yeah. I know that, like, overall, they're not as popular as some of our other stuff, but, you know, dear to my heart. Right. But the next one is um, going to be enjoyable, I think, and I'm really, really, really looking forward to the movies that haven't aged well. List, so. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening and um, have a great night. Have a good night. Thank you.